Good evening to you all. In thinking about possible themes for this evening, I finally settled on concentration. I often find that the talks that I wind up giving have something to do with the conversations that I've been having during the week. So, yeah, this one's for you one way or another. (laughs) So this is a very broad topic and a deep topic as well, and you can take uh, the topic in a number of different directions. What I'm trying to do tonight is offer uh, a way of talking about this that's going to be useful and applicable to you in your practice here. You know, sometimes people listen to these talks on Dharma Seed and um, they're not in a practice environment and they may be looking for something more academic or um, more sutta-based or scholarly. But here I'm concerned about your practice and what you're actually experiencing. So I'm approaching this from the perspective of attempting to give you some useful advice, some of which is uh, hard-earned from my own direct experience, right? So you may be able to take a dukkha shortcut in some respects based on something that you've heard in this talk. Or if that's not the case, you may at least be able to realize, oh yeah, yeah, that's where that dukkha came from. (laughs) I see, that's how that arose in the course of my practice. So let's start by talking about concentration and what it is, actually. We'll start right down at the, the basic level of understanding. So this, the word for this in uh, Pali is samadhi, and it comes from two different words that are uh, from Pali, a prefix called sam, which means together, and then a root of da, which means to put or to place. So samadhi means the mind unified in a steady and undistracted awareness. And this theme of without distraction is repeated in the various ways of describing this particular quality of mind. There's another word that's often used too, uh, ekagata, which means one-pointedness of mind or unification of mind. Unification meaning not fragmented, not spread out with uh, bits dangling out of the reach of consciousness. So Bhante Gunarantana talks about concentration as a gathering together of all the positive forces of the mind, tying them into a bundle and then wielding them into a single intense beam that will stay where we put it. So again, there's a sense of gathering, the mention of wholesome factors of mind, some capacity to direct this particular uh, kind of awareness where we wish. Ajahn Brahm says, uh, attentive stillness is a way that you could describe it. Shaila Catherine, the American teacher, says the mental factor of one-pointedness with its characteristic of non-distraction is sometimes used synonymously with concentration. Mental factors such as one-pointedness, decision, energy, and mindfulness work together to drive attention to the chosen object and consolidate the associated mental factors into a state we commonly recognize as being concentrated. So there again you get this idea of things being pulled together, a number of different wholesome things being pulled together and then functioning together uh, to support the capacity for observation. So you could say that concentration emerges when wholesome mental states come together, creating unification of mind, which allows us to choose an object of awareness at will and be able to stay with it mindfully. 
So this capacity drives out the hindrances. When concentration, wise concentration is strong, the hindrances are suppressed. Now, you notice another thing about the definition that she gave. She emphasized the fact that mindfulness is part of this. So for there to be wise concentration, there is mindfulness present as well. So if, if, for instance, you have the experience where somebody says, oh yeah, I'm really, really concentrated, or my mind is, you know, and the teacher asks the question, well, you know, where was your mind? You know, what were you experiencing? And they can't tell you. They can't say anything about it. That may be a state of some kind of concentration, but it wouldn't be wise concentration as the Buddha um, describes it. Right? So mindfulness comes first. Mindfulness is a necessary part of this, this packet. So let's talk about the Buddha's uh, schema or the Buddha's way of uh, holding this particular quality of samadhi, concentration. So it's very important in his system. So if you were to go through the suttas, for instance, where he's enjoining people to cultivate various things, you would actually see more references to concentration than you do to mindfulness. So... It's the last step on the Eightfold Path, wise concentration or skillful concentration. It's number six of the seven factors of awakening. It's number four of the five spiritual faculties. So this concentration, this bundling of these wholesome factors, including mindfulness, is important because it allows us to see things as they are. Mindfulness places us in connection with experience. It helps us to recognize its particulars. Concentration has the capacity to actually magnify the experience in a certain sort of way so that we see it more clearly, we see more of its grain, more of its detail. And it's, it's like... Um, an example that was used by Sayadaw Upandita once when he was talking about how mindfulness and concentration deepen in practice and how they over time allow us to see at deeper and deeper and more and more specific uh, levels of receptivity. So he says, you know, for instance, say you're in a room and you look across the room at the opposite wall, and you notice what seems to be a line on the wall. And then you get a little bit closer and you start to realize that it's moving. And then you get a little bit closer and you realize, okay, it's like a group of ants who are walking this particular trail. And as you get even closer than that, you start to realize there's a space between them You get closer than that, you start to realize, oh, okay, they have these individual limbs that they're moving, right? You see the point. The closer that you get to experience, the more you can see. You ever have the experience of uh, using one of those magnifying mirrors when you're, you're trying to, I don't know, put in your contact lenses or something, or using a jeweler's loop and trying to look at, at something close up. You know what that does when that magnification is there. You can just see a lot more. And that's one of the major functions and the major benefits of concentration, along with the benefit of this lack of distraction, which allows the mind to actually choose what it attends to and stay there. 
It loses that kind of jittery, easily uh, bounced off, easily forgetting what's going on. All of the energies start to be pulled together to actually just be there. Just be there. You know, we've all had our own lay experiences of a state of the mind being concentrated in one way or another. You know, those kinds of conversations that you have with a, a partner or a small child or something where you're just really there. Right? You're not trying to like pay attention, you're just there. So there's a, always a question. So this is an important quality. How much of it is really necessary? How much of it is necessary? And there's a lot of variation of opinion on this. This uh, topic of concentration is one where there are a number of different views and, and opinions. Uh, you know, some coming from the sutta, some coming from the Vasudhimaga, some coming from uh, more uh, recent forms of Vipassana practice. So there's a range of view, all the way from someone like Pawak Sayadaw, who, who talks about the need for concentration to be developed to the jhanic level, to teachers like Mahasi Sayadaw that seek to develop concentration to what's called the level of uh, Kanaka Samadhi, or access concentration to teachers like uh, Sayadaw Utejaniya who don't really emphasize uh, concentration. The focus really is on the cultivation of uh, mindfulness in its pure form with the understanding that concentration will come along afterwards of necessity. So for a lot of us, concentration is the weak link in our practice. That's the bad news. So there are exceptions to, to this. Some people just seem to be kind of born samadhi athletes or something, and their mind can just kind of go into things and hang out there. For most of us, nah, not so much. So the bad news is this is often underdeveloped in our practice, but the good news is that it actually can be developed. So whatever level you have of this, it can be increased through practice. So now let's turn to the point of what actually supports concentration. What's helpful in developing concentration, this bringing together, this bundling of these wholesome factors that lead us to say, okay, the mind's concentrated. So one thing is knowing when the mind is concentrated. In other words, beginning to be able to discern the state when it's present. So the Buddha talks in the Satipatthana Sutta, he says, you know, the the uh, yogi knows the mind that is distracted as the mind that's distracted. The, the yogi knows the mind that's concentrated as the mind that's concentrated. He thinks that that's a very good thing to notice that. And it's very interesting how he puts that. He, because it's very matter of fact. He doesn't go like, the yogi knows the mind that's distracted is a really bad mind in a really bad yogi and feels really bad about how bad their practice is, right? He just goes, the yogi knows the mind that's distracted as the mind that's distracted. The yogi knows the mind, a mind that's concentrated as a mind that's concentrated. And he doesn't go on. And then he feels really superior and then, right, goes on a big trip about, you know, how close he is to enlightenment. None of that is there. It's just this very mindful, this is the way it is, this is the way it is. Concentration is here, concentration is not here. And he says that about many, many other states as well. 
So knowing when it's concentrated and knowing when it isn't. So another factor that's important in developing concentration is sila or basic morality. And you can see, if you think about it, why this is, because it's a protection from remorse. Right? If the mind has the habit of kind of running around and the body following doing a lot of unwholesome things, it's going to be more difficult for it to settle down, both because it has those tendencies easily activated or often present, but also because, you know, there will be memories of things that have been done or not done that come up that can be unsettling and which need to be uh, worked with or uh, passed through the mind in order for the mind to become more calm. So another quality that supports concentration is renunciation. Now this is a really interesting word to me, renunciation, because I think we as Westerners often tend to hear this as a little bit like rhyming with denunciation. You know, renunciation, denunciation, it's like you can't do anything fun, you know. And this is one of the more challenging teachings of the Buddha. And the way I hold this is that this is his pointing to the truth that the pursuit of sense pleasure as the point of existence or the highest priority is very diluted and will not move in the direction of happiness and well-being and liberation of mind. So this letting go of sense pleasures and worldly pursuits in periods of practice is very skillful in particular because it leads to non-agitation. The, the mind isn't always spinning around the radar dish of where is the pleasant Vedana and how can I get it? I mean, it will do that on its own anyway, but right? you're less invested in that experience. Now I want to say something here too, which is to acknowledge the fact that a mind that is well concentrated is actually very pleasant. Wise concentration is a very pleasant state. It can be deeply pleasant. And the Buddha says this kind of uh, pleasure, he has carefully considered, carefully examines, and he finds no fault in it. So there's no, nothing wrong with the kind of pleasure that arises it, with uh, deep concentration in meditation practice. And it's a very interesting thing because it seems that part of the path of spiritual development is that as the mind starts to touch into some of these deeper uh, pleasures, it actually starts to find the more worldly or more gross level pleasures just not that compelling or interesting anymore. And a natural kind of letting go of the pursuit of certain things can actually happen. In fact, when you're working with the jhanas, part of the, what happens with that process is with each of the material jhanas, uh, as you get ready to cultivate or enter into the next one, there's a certain kind of reflecting that goes on about the limitations of the previous one. Right? So that the mind becomes willing to let go of its fixation with any particular pleasure that it's experiencing in the interest of entering into deeper states and into... Uh, and uh, moving in the direction of the unbinding of suffering that's possible uh, with classic awakening, awakening experiences. So to develop concentration, there also needs to be faith, sadha, 
Ooh, that's a loaded word for Western people, isn't it? Don't try to tell me that stuff. Sell me that stuff. So the Buddha has a particular way of holding or understanding faith that's actually more closely aligned with confidence or the willingness to put your heart upon a particular enterprise. So it has to do with being fully engaged at the very least with doing the activities which will test the truth of the Buddhist teachings. Right? So if you don't run the experiment, you don't get the results. If there's not any faith in practice, then there isn't the level of commitment that causes energy to arise and effort to be made. So there's kind of a stuttering and a hesitation right there at the beginning. And then you, you don't know because you haven't really fully given yourself to it. So there's faith, at least provisional faith, in the direction of the teachings, and then some kind of baseline faith or confidence in yourself as being a human being who has the human potential to do these kinds of practices. So you don't have to regard yourself as a super person or as a person without flaws or somebody who has it all together or you know, pretend you've never made any mistakes or be perfect or any of that. It's not like that. But there, there needs to be some sort of baseline. Okay, if the Buddha says human beings can do this, and he gives the instructions step by step, and I follow the instructions, there's nothing about me that's so uh, different from other human beings that there won't be some kind of wholesome result. So at least that level of willingness to do the experiment. So there needs to be committed effort to attend to the chosen meditation object. So wise effort, the step number six of the Eightfold Path. Then there's... Uh, one from the commentaries where a supporting condition is described to be a kind of clean and orderly environment. That's kind of an interesting one, isn't it? I think it's quite true though, at least in <coughs> my experience. When I came in here this morning and I kind of looked at like the array of stuff that was like along here in the front, I noticed I felt like just kind of compressed. Like what is all this? Like <clears throat> I felt kind of cluttery up here in the front of the room. <laughs> right? It's kind of like there's too many benches and cushions and, ooh, and that looks like a cat basket over there. It's like <laughs> what's, what's going on here, you know? <clears throat> distracting, distracting. It was momentary, but... You know what it's like to sit down on your, at your desk and be working on something and the desk is clear, you know? For most people it works better than with their, when there's a lot of clutter. But there are individual variations there, I recognize. So balance of attention. Balance of attention. So there are five spiritual faculties, which are these... Uh, capacities of mind that actually drive or power this enterprise of spiritual practice. And they need to be balanced with each other. So the first of these is faith, and the second of these is effort, and then there's mindfulness, and then there's concentration and wisdom. So the energy or the effort and the concentration have to be balanced. And the faith and the wisdom need to be balanced. And mindfulness is always balanced because it, it's mindfulness. You can never have too much of that one. 
So sometimes in, in working with concentration, for instance, concentration helps to open some very deep states of calm and tranquility. And the challenge then for the practice is to have enough energy present there that it doesn't go into sloth and torpor. Sometimes there is so much energy present that it's difficult to settle on the meditation object and there isn't an, enough calm. There's kind of a... And I, ha- I had an experience of this on retreat here when I was practicing with Pawak Sayadaw doing concentration practices where my body like had all this... In- incredible energy I could hardly sit in the chair but I I realized after a certain point you know I that there was there was too much I had to either bring down the energy or or bring up the calm you know you ever see one of those sound control panels at the disco you know the little sliding levers you know, and there's the bass, here's the treble, here's the volume, here's the... So there's a little bit of that that goes on in practice, getting it to sound right, to have these different aspects work together in a way that's in harmony and helps support the overall enterprise. Then there's the point of picking the right practice object picking the right type of meditation to develop concentration. So you want to pick something that's within your range, that you, meaning that you can connect with it, and that can conceivably become interesting and pleasant to you. So certain kinds of objects for certain kinds of people are just fraught with concentration, uh, complications, and they would be ones to not choose as their appropriate object. So what, what would that be? Well, so a classic uh, example of this is uh, someone who once told me about how they had all these breathing uh, issues f- from childhood. They had asthma and, you know, all of this, these really... Uh, Uh, powerful and unpleasant stories about not being able to breathe and all the rest of that. And they, they found using the breath as a primary object was not relaxing. It was not pleasant. It was too fraught with everything. So for that person, you wouldn't use the breath. For a lot of people, the breath is fine. For some people, it's not. Hearing might be more useful. Or metta, one of the Brahma Viharas. But you want to pick something and then you want to give it your full loving attention. You know, we have this idea sometimes that boredom or lack of interest is inherent in the object. It's kind of like an attribute of the object. It's a boring thing. Oh, that's boring. Okay, boredom is a mind state. It's not in the thing. It's in the mind's attitude towards the thing. So, you know, think of it as a courtship, right? You and your primary object, this is a courtship. You're interested in finding out about it. You're interested in learning about it. Ajahn Brahm gives a very interesting tip about developing concentration and working with the breath. And he says, between you and the breath, let there be metta. Meaning, can there be some good will in the field, some good will in how you're going about turning the mind towards the breath. And he further elaborates, you know, how it is, whether it's, you know, rough or smooth or pleasant or, or, you know, short or however it is, can you meet that with metta? 
just as in metta practice we endeavor to meet all kinds of beings with the same kind of attitude of mind, goodwill. Right? Don't be always picking at your meditation object. Picking at it. Picking at how it seems. Picking at how you're doing it. Pick, 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 pick. Okay, not conducive. So, learning how to recognize hindrances and practice with them. Because if the hindrances are strong, you're going to have to deal with them one way or another before concentration can emerge. So you're going to have to use mindfulness to work with them. And this work, working with hindrances, learning how to recognize them, learning how to keep your seat staying stable, developing skill in doing that is a good part of meditation practice. It's a, it's a really big part of meditation practice. Because if we didn't have hindrances, if we didn't have these particular kinds of states which cloud and obscure the mind, we wouldn't need to be <laughs> doing meditation practice. It would all just be really clear and obvious, right? We would all be liberated by wisdom through clear seeing. So in one way or another, these uh, adventitious visitors to the mind, they're not advantageous, but they are adventitious, I guess, which arise due to causes and conditions, are the field of practice a good amount of the time in whatever variety of meditation you do. So another thing that is supporting is continuity of attention and awareness. So as I previously mentioned, things get interesting when they're attended to with interest, with devotion. They get interesting. And then another point is getting clear about your meditation instructions and what they are, and then working with them with integrity and commitment. So why do I mention that? Well, because often we have just kind of a vague idea of what it is that we're doing in particular. It's not so specific. It's just sort of like, well, I'm being mindful. So here's the hint. If the teacher asks you what set of meditation instructions you're using, that should be a pretty accessible thing to tell them. So this isn't like a blame piece or anything. But if you, but if you can't say, then that's a conversation that would be really useful for you to have with the teacher. Because there aren't very many opportunities for people to actually have one-to-one contact with the teacher and actually get that kind of baseline clarification about what the instructions are. So one of the things that I see now with the proliferation of different, many different forms of meditation instruction being given, and you have different teacher voices as well, I think there is less overall clarity of, about what the instructions are. There's kind of like bits and pieces mixed up together and you know some sort of fruit salad, but it doesn't <laughs> really cohere very well. There seems to be some missing binding element of understanding. So don't don't keep changing up your practice instructions when you run into difficulty or you get bored. Because your practice won't open and develop, right? You're just kind of like switch. So no matter what practice instructions you're using, you're going to go through periods of time where it's difficult, it's boring, it's challenging. You don't want to do it anymore. So making the decision to, to change to another practice is one that you should really consider. You should really look at, well, why, why would I do this right now? It could be skillful. It could be that it's not skillful. 
It's that you've kind of reached your, your uh, present edge of development in terms of working. And rather than, you know, kind of working there at the edge and figuring out something more and expanding your capacity, you're just kind of adverting to something else. Okay. So let's talk about how concentration can be known subjectively. What is it actually like when the mind has got some concentration going? I said earlier that it can be useful to recognize a mind that's concentrated when it's concentrated. So I'll give you some examples of things that I've noticed, and then I'd be interested in in hearing from um, people here about how they identify concentration for themselves too. So these are the kinds of experiences that indicate concentration is present. Here's some examples. The mind is able to stay with the chosen object more or less continuously. Right? So if it's going to hearing, it can kind of be with hearing. It can... It can Turn where it wants to turn, stay there. Or another version of this is uh, the mind is able to stay with the flow of a variety of different things occurring in sequence. This would be along the lines of seeing, 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 hearing, 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 worry, 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 sad, sad, sad. Right, different things arising in, in sequence, being known. But the mind is there in the middle of whatever is happening just then. Even though the objects or the experiences are, are uh, changing and are uh, arising and being replaced by something else. So sometimes with concentration there's a feeling of being closed in with only the object being known. So all of a sudden, you're in the dining hall and you're eating. And all of a sudden, you're really there eating. You're there with the chewing. You're there with the tasting. You're there with the swallowing. The mind isn't wandering to thoughts about whether to take a walk or whether you should you know, go back to the hall right after lunch or anything. You're just there with the thing. That's like the only thing that seems to be going on is just that thing, right? The mind is completely pulled together in the experience. So that's called seclusion. Seclusion. So another thing is the sense of self may dissolve or loosen. There may be the experience of, less of an experience of, there's me sitting, uh, meditating on the breath, like the breath is, you know, somehow separate from me. There may be the experience of just the breath, kind of the collapse of the, the witness piece of it. Just the breath, just the breathing. The sense of the body may uh, alter or disappear. This is pretty common. Like all of a sudden there's less of a sense of a solidity sitting with, you know, with there being feet and a butt and all the rest of it. And maybe there's just sensations or maybe there's the experience of the body disappearing completely. I can remember the first time I had that experience, the, the sense of the body disappearing completely and there was just the sense that there was just, you know, the mind-knowing experience. And it was, oh, I've disappeared. And then some residual wisdom arose in the mind and the next thought was, well, how likely is that? And I opened my eyes and of course, you know, it all came back. So another sign of concentration can be a once familiar object may seem different. 
So with the breath, for instance, it, you may be used to feeling it. It kind of like feels a certain way at the nostrils. And then at a certain point, maybe you lose the feeling of there being a particular place where you're feeling the breath, but there's still some sensation, but the sensation feels different. Maybe it feels more faint or more refined, or perhaps there's a, a feeling of... Uh, more sensations arising and passing away within a period of time, you know? More, you ever have the experience in listening to a sound? Yeah, there's, there's a bird. <laughs> then all of a sudden you start to realize that you're actually hearing. <laughs> right? Little arisings and passings away within that sound. That's a, sound, a sign of the deepening of concentration. So another sign is it might get very quiet inside, even silent. So you may have the experience at some point of thought cutting out, sometimes cutting out completely. That can be another one where the system goes, whoa! <laughs> How identified we are with the thinking mind, right? Oh, we've got to keep it going all the time or we don't exist. Ooh, let me start it up again. Ooh. Or you may have a really different experience or uh, reaction to that sense of silence descending or all of a sudden it being completely quiet even though there may still be sounds going on in the room but there's just internal silence. It could be a sense of great relief at the first touch of that kind of inner tranquility or in the talking finally shuts off. So another sign of concentration can be that objects become very interesting and even alluring. So I know this can be hard hard to believe at uh, certain stages in practice that it's ever going to get to be anything but kind of something that you have to do in order to meditate and be a meditator. But when the mind starts to develop concentration, it starts to really like its meditation object. It starts to prefer its meditation object. It looks forward to meeting its meditation object again. And this is partly because feelings of pleasure in the body and mind arise as the part, as part of the opening of samadhi. So, you know the word PT, P-I-T-I, rapture, sukha, pleasantness. And these can be both feelings of the body and they can be experienced in the mind. There's very deep states of, of pleasure. And sometimes with this there can be the arising of things like lights and internal sounds and things like that. You know, various uh, things of that nature which the mind can find very interesting and fascinating. And then it's the, the teacher's job to encourage you to a mindful relationship to that so you don't get overly fascinated in a way that's going to lead you to plateau in your practice. So a couple of things now about the ways to cultivate concentration. So in doing insight meditation practice, concentration is cultivated by letting mindfulness really take a strong lead. Right? Concentration emerges in that practice. Mindfulness is first in the seven factors of enlightenment. Mindfulness, then investigation 
which is what mindfulness does in relationship to what it knows. Mindfulness investigation, energy, rapture, calm, concentration, equanimity. That's the way it opens. So in insight meditation, you're training mindfulness to the point where you experience what's called access concentration or kanaka samadhi, which means the mind is able to be present with changing objects and change within objects in a consistent, ongoing, uninterrupted way. So that's the level of concentration you're going for. So you still retain the capacity for investigation. And that concentration is used to really look at the presence of the three characteristics in whatever conditioned experience is is present there. Now in insight meditation itself, there are different ways to practice. Some ways of practicing are are more uh, concentration oriented and some are more mindfulness oriented. So a way of practicing that would be more concentration oriented would be for instance, working with the breath at the nostrils or, or working with hearing a, as an anchor. Staying with that unless something else broke in and became predominant. Then being with that thing. And when it's over, going back to the anchor. Right? That supports, that's a kind of a concentration dominant way of practicing. In but there's still mindfulness in it, right? Because you still, you still are seeing the changing sensations in the breath, for instance, and the change of objects with the arising of something else to predominance and the changes within that, predo- that predominant object when it's being known, right? So you're not losing that capacity to observe change, which is the linchpin and... Uh, of the arising of wisdom which is liberative. In some of the other practices that are concentration meditations or concentration practices, there can be more of a monofocus on a single object and the cultivation of the capacity for absorption in it, meaning the mind becomes in a certain kind of way completely present with the one thing It's not looking for change or motion within it, for instance, in the practice of the material jhanas. It's really going in the direction of stability of mind. And so there's still mindfulness in it in that you're knowing the object, but that whole investigative piece, the mind turned towards the observation of the three characteristics, that's not so much going on there. That's Again, to get back to our image of the control panel, that investigative piece is is pulled way down. So the Brahma Viharas uh, can be done as a concentration practice. They can be done as a non-concentration practice. Somewhat different sets of instructions. The breath, especially the the breath at the nostrils can be used as done as a concentration practice or it can be done as a insight practice. You get to a certain point if you're working with the breath as a concentration object where you will choose or you could choose which fork in the road you're going to take. Are you going to go into absorption or are you going to continue with insight practice? And that fork in the road arises when the mind has gotten to the point where there's well-established access concentration. Right? Now, the concentration-only path, the path of absorption, path of the practice of the jhanas and things, develops the capacity for concentration which is a very, very useful tool for the reasons that I talked about earlier, the the magnification that's present there with it. The capacity of the mind to overcome the hindrances and really be present with what it's experiencing. But it's important to know that it's not liberative in and of itself. 
meaning it doesn't necessarily undercut the delusion born from craving, which the Buddha says is the source of our discretionary suffering as human beings. So for that, you need insight practice. You need the mind turned in a deep and sustained way towards the seeing of impermanence. So the the two complement each other and there's substantial overlap between the two. What really unbinds the delusion and the clinging that comes from it is seeing the nature of reality directly, which is what arises from sustained insight meditation practice. Okay, so let me talk just a little bit about places where the cultivation of concentration can get tripped up. So I've touched on a few of them, what I've said already. So I talked about the importance of sila. So while you're here on retreat, it's really important to keep sila, like not not to be cut in corners. Because it does do things to your mind stream that don't support you settling down. And the protection of seclusion here on retreat is also very important. One of the things about deep concentration is that seclusion, this kind of quiet, protected environment, is a really important element in the mind being able to slow down, calm down, feel safe, relax, regroup, pull its energies in from the usual dispersion we have in the world. So, you know, doing things like writing letters or passing notes or breaking silence, the effect on the, on your pra- on the practice environment and on your settledness is not good. So even lots of reading or uh, Dharma talk listening is a displacement of focus while you're here. So I'm not saying don't do any of it. Obviously there's a library and some tapes. But you know what? You can listen to Dharma talks just about any time. You can read about any time but your access to this kind of environment where you're working directly with your own mind, this is really rare. This may never happen for you again, right? So I would be very judicious with that. So a related topic is using the smartphone and the tablet and stuff. So wise speech as as it's practiced here is letting go of all of this per the practice guidelines that, you know, were clear when application was made to come here. So this has been a really interesting and fascinating thing to watch from the perspective of a teacher because there didn't used to be, you know, access up here at all. Uh, I remember in the old days of being at IMS, if you were there on the three-month retreat, the way you would handle the need to make a call, and it was just a call, of course, because there's no such thing as, you know, the internet or any of that. You'd have to go to the office and, you know, give them some paper money, and if you're lucky, they'd give you like a roll of quarters And then you would take your roll of quarters and you'd go down to the basement near where they did the laundry and find the payphone. And if, you know, get in there with your roll of quarters and, you know, you would really need to talk to somebody to do that, right? And everybody in the office would know that you did that. And so, you know, the teacher would know you did that. And so it it was kind of a thing, you know? So this is really interesting to see the change of environment now with the ubiquitous nature of connectivity. And it's, it's made a difference in people's practices. And I'll give you a hint, it's not an improvement. <laughs> right? 
So what, I, what we have seen, and I think there's kind of a consensus, is that the concentration overall is worse. Well, how, how could it not be, right? It's kind of like we have this easy access to this, these devices that are like a kind of a combination of um, entertainment, connection, um, uh, pacifier, um, right? Just notice for yourself when the impulse arises to go to a device, what hindrance is present? Because I can guarantee you there is one. Probably more than one. Just check and look at what that is. See what it is. Because if you didn't have access to that device or you didn't uh, go to that device, you would have to practice with the hindrance, right? You would have to deal with it. Which means that you would develop skill in dealing with it. So I'll put that out there as a challenge. But, you know, if, if you're doing that, you're doing the hardest kind of practice, which is stop and go practice. So the arising of hindrances, the arising of difficulty in practice is not a sign that you're making a mistake or you're doing it wrong. There are periods in practice, there are parts of practice where it's just hard, where it's just difficult, it's unpleasant. To cross over the, that threshold into a greater level of mastery, into deeper understanding, into increased capacities of heart and mind. You have to go through it. You can't just change to another set of practice instructions after you've gone to your cell phone (laughs) to check your text messages just to let your honey know that you're thinking about her (laughs) and find out X, Y, and Z that then becomes very unsettling that causes your mind to spin for the next day or two, right? So this is really interesting, this challenge to the the value of of renunciation. So another way that concentration is sabotaged is by making effort in a way that isn't fruitful. So that would be the trying to make something happen right now. Right now. Yes, it's wise to know the direction of practice and you know how, how things unfold and how you would like your own practice to unfold. But to get this idea in your mind, this should be happening right now. This should be happening right now. I should be able to blah, or this shouldn't be happening right now. All of which you're doing instead of attending to what's actually there. Right? It's kind of like... There's something happening right there. It's not being perceived. It's kind of like, uh, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Well, it's right there. It's a big fat hindrance. (laughs) Yeah, here it is right here. Oh, it's anger. Oh, it's sadness. Oh, it's wanting, 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 wanting. So, you know, if the mind is grasping to have something desired happen, It's leaning into the future, meaning it's disconnected with the immediate, the immediate knowing, the immediate thing, the real thing, the thing that's actually there. So there's a big piece about recognizing when a hindrance is present and then developing skill in relationship with it. Because if, if unwholesome states are there and they're really strong and you're trying to meditate, you're trying to go to your primary object you're meditating through the hindrance, right? The attention that's being turned, say, to the breath or to the Brahma-vihara practice or the feeling of your feet walking, it's got a big, fat hindrance in it, right? It's got aversion in it. Walking practice, walking practice, feeling, 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 feeling. (laughs) Right? Okay. Listen to the tone of your, the notes sometimes. They can be very useful in noti- noticing which hindrance it might be, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Sit and 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 lunch, 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 lunch. <laughs> lunch. 
So, you know, and this is often tied up in a certain kind of report carding that we do to ourselves, right? So, report carding while you're practicing, that's one, something to be aware of. The report card. It's usually not a good score, is it, when the report carding is re really rolling along? It's usually a C <laughs> minus at best, probably adjusted downwards from there, right? So if there's a lot of self-evaluation going on of a critical nature and how it's all a reflection on you and, you know, it's there's kind of a deflation and then a kind of a collapse into uh, collapse of effort. Or sometimes there's an inflation. That's kind of interesting when it's going, you know, kind of good. It's like, oh, okay. Got it. Okay, Samadhi, I know how to do it, right? You go into the next sitting, right? You got, shh, 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 shh. Now, how did I sit? How did I sit to make that happen? <laughs> right? You arrange yourself carefully. You take the same support cushions that you used the last time. You know, you try to prop your legs in exactly the same way. You sit down, you turn the mind to the breath or something, and then you kind of notice... This isn't as clear as the <laughs> last time, right? Oh, if we could only erase the memory piece, you know, it would be much easier. So don't indulge in report carding, which, you know, is really a hindrance wrapped up in a kind of self-view that leads to doubt and other hindrances coming in. And a another thing that can kind of feed into the report carding is book knowledge. You know, we have a number of these programs now, you know, DPP, AYZ, you know. I hear Spirit Rock has a, a new program that they're starting called the Advanced Practitioners Program. Wow, <laughs> that'll be interesting, <laughs> right? So, you know, we, ha we learn a lot. We learn a lot. There's a lot of books, you know, we can read about this teacher's take on samadhi or this, you know, great master's experience of this state or that state or how somebody holds emptiness or, you know, somebody's scholarly breakdown of, you know, what subset of the Satipatthana Sutta applies to this and what that word means and, you know, is it the same translation from the uh, Pali as it is from the ancient Chinese and, oh, there's a subtle variation, but which one is right and how can I, oh my God. Okay, that's oh, the encyclopedia of the mind. So this would be a case where the awareness is not actually close enough to the object to actually have a kind of grounding in mindfulness, right? It's spinning around in this theoretical world of, well, what does it mean about that? And, you know, maybe I should do this and maybe I should do that and so and lastly the last thing to say is fascination or fear of the new can actually be something that is a challenge it can kind of high bottom us if we don't work with it skillfully so I mentioned earlier that concentration practice can lead to things being experienced in new and unfamiliar ways. I said that, right? Like all of a sudden, the, you know, you notice the breath is different. Maybe it isn't as clear as it used to be, but you're still paying attention to it. Or maybe the hearing starts to be the little instead of, you know, the bird tweets. Or maybe the, the body starts to feel less solid or, or dis dissolve or, you know, Various uh, things fall away, thought stops. So this can lead to either fascination or attachment to the pleasant experiences that are there. Or sometimes even if the experiences are pleasant, it can lead to the arising of fear or resistance uh, to the, the novelty of this. So both lead to, can lead to a desire for control that isn't immediately there, right? The desire either to grasp and hold on to it or the desire to like make it stop, make it stop, make it stop. So 
opening up the the path of concentration is basically asking the mind to be more fluid, more flexible, more open to what is actually experienced, including things that you may experience that have been outside your previous range of experiences. So you can see how the paramis and faith are a support in being able to do this. Because there ha- a great support is a baseline of, of trust. And then you really pull on the paramis of things like resolve and patience and metta and mindfulness and equanimity and all of that to allow the opening uh, to happen and to continue with the practice in a way that's open-ended, onward leading in the way that the Buddha expresses, onward leading. So we can't really know for ourselves where the path is going in its next specific steps because we haven't done it. So it's a step-by-step thing. Can we be present with this? Can we be present with this? Can we allow this? Can we be balanced with this? Right, moment by moment as it all unfolds. Not needing to have like a clear idea of how it's gonna happen or where it's gonna go or exactly what is what or what's gonna happen next. So in a certain kind of way, we establish connection with moment to moment experience. And then gradually over time, we develop a greater confidence in being able to take our hands off the wheel. You know, the impulse to grab it will arise, we'll grab it again. At a certain point you do realize it's kind of like one of those self-driving cars this unfolding of things moment by moment, but with the bugs ironed out. (laughs) That it's trustworthy, it's a trustworthy way to be with experience. It's an onward leading way to be with experience with the arising and passing away of things in immediate knowing. But you'll just have to see that for yourself, so. Many more things could be said, but I think that's quite enough for the evening. So let's then express the intentions of our Sangha to share the benefit of the practice that we've done today and that we've done this evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.